Well, this morning, beloved, we begin a new sermon series called Covenant Community. I don't know if you got a sermon card when you came in this morning, if you maybe got one in weeks past. It's a, a card, a bookmark that lists the upcoming sermons by date and by series. And you look here, we're starting this morning, Covenant Community, a sermon that we titled Saving Grace and Personal Commitment. Now, we are doing the sermon series as for the same reason that we started the year with our five M's. And for the same reason that we just did that short series called Pastors and People, it's because we feel as pastors compelled to try uh, as, as we are emerging, we pray, we trust, we hope from this pandemic to try and re-knit the fabric of our church community. We spent two years in our bedrooms and living rooms uh, sort of watching online. And we've spent these last two years in, if we've had any real personal fellowship and connection, doing that in very small groups. And so the muscles of church life have grown weak for two years, right? The, the, the strength the rapid, that comes from repetitions, they tell me, all y'all go to the gym, right? You got to put a little weight on the bar and, and, and repeat it, right, to build muscle mass and strength. Well, the strength that comes from repetitively getting together as God's people, sitting under God's word, working together on God's mission, the strength from those repetitions has been weakened because we, we've not been pressing into these things because of the pandemic. And so as pastors, we think it's important to get back in the spiritual gym and, and to remember how to lift right? Some of y'all go in there, you're just throwing weight around any kind of way, just hauling all out, ah, ah, you know, and stretching muscles and carrying on, ripping stuff. Now there's form to this thing in there, right? And so a good lift isn't about the weight, it's also about the form, that you're properly exercising the muscles, getting the stress in the right place, using, using motions that the body was made to make. Well, the same is true of church life. You can't, we can't just come back in any old way, any kind of way, throwing things around and trying to do things. We, we got to actually get back into proper form. And we got to lift in that form. And so that's why we've been sort of committed this year uh, to sort of, in that sense, relaunching the church, re-knitting together the fabric of the church. And so we began with our 5M series, and Pastor Dennis did a fantastic job preaching a series called Jesus on the 5Ms. If you want to listen to that, that's on our website. Then we did the little short pastors and people series where we're thinking about the relationship between pastors and people and trying to recalibrate that relationship. If you will, you can think about these series as looking, first of all, at our relationship to our mission in the world. That's kind of the 5M series. And then beginning to sort of look at our relationship with each other. First pastors and people, now the whole community. What does it mean to be a member of ARC? What did you sign up for um, when you became a member of this church? And I would argue, insofar as it's biblical, of every church. What does God ask of us and what do we commit to? That's what we're answering in this series on called Covenant Community. It's a series on our church covenant. As a church, just a little bit of background, maybe for those of you who are new uh, to church life, as a church, we have three documents that are kind of documents that we use for the unity of the church, right? The first is our statement of faith. We use the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. That defines what we believe. That defines what we think um, the, the Bible teaches about God, about salvation, about key matters of Christian teaching. The second document that we use for um, unity is our constitution. 
Well, you've probably never seen our Constitution, but you have felt it in motion uh, anytime you've come to a members meeting, for example. The Constitution doesn't define our belief. It sort of frames our business together as a church. This is how we will conduct the business of the church, electing officers, approving budgets, things of that sort. Right. So belief in business. And then we have what we're looking at now, the church covenant. This begins to frame out our behavior as a church, how we agree to live. So our statement of faith is our credenda, what we believe, and our church covenant is our agenda, how we commit to act in the world. Now, in that sense, a church covenant is uh, how we set community norms. It's how we set the culture of the church. It's one way of defining how we want to live together. And what we're going to do in this series uh, is a little bit different than what we normally do. We normally take a book of the Bible and take a section of that book and walk through it section by section until we preach through the whole book of the Bible. So our, our regular practice here is what's called expositional preaching. We want to expose the meaning of a passage of Scripture and apply it to our lives. And we're going to do some of that here. But this series is more topical. We're taking the topic of church community, and we're going to work through that topic using our statement of faith, or excuse me, using our, um, our church covenant and, and bringing various passages of Scripture to bear on that topic. So paragraph by paragraph through our church covenant, which I think is on like page 11 or something of your bulletin. Uh, paragraph, which one? Page 7. Paragraph by paragraph. Over this series, we're going to work through that covenant. And we're going to begin with that opening paragraph this morning, right at the top there, which I'll read for us. Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we now, in dependence upon his spirit, resolve to live by faith and so establish this covenant with each other. Here's the main point that I want to make from just that paragraph there. It's one sentence, so you can take that sentence as the main point if you want to. But to put it in slightly different terms, here's the main point for the sermon this morning. And I'll give you the outline, and then we'll get into it. Main point. A covenant community must be built on the spiritual realities of conversion, the filling of the Spirit, and active faith. That a covenant community, what we're talking about being as a church, needs to be built on three spiritual realities that are uh, sort of addressed here in the opening line of the covenant. And that is conversion, the filling of the Spirit, and active faith. Now, we're going to chase that down phrase by phrase in just a moment, but I want to give you a little bit more context. Here's our outline for the sermon, if you're a note-taking type. Number one, the Bible is organized by covenants. The Bible is organized by covenants. And so we're going to do just a little bit of biblical theology there to help you know that this idea is rooted in the Bible, not just something Pastor T made up. Okay? Number two, three principles lay the foundation for our church covenant. Three principles lay the foundation for our church covenant. So let's take that first bit, that the Bible is organized by covenants. In one sense, you can see covenants all over the Bible. Now, covenants is just another word for relationships, right? Uh, it's another word for relationships, a particular kind of relationship. Um, sometimes when the Bible talks about covenants, it's talking about the relationship between God and man. God's work in saving sinners always occurs in the context of covenants. You have no relationship with God if you are not in a covenant with God. 
if you are not in a relationship that God himself has defined and structured, which puts certain requirements on us as his people and makes certain promises that he makes to us as his God. Now, another word you can use for covenant might be the word contract, right? Now, here's the difference between contracts and biblical covenants with God. In contracts, you more or less have two equal parties who negotiate the terms of that contract. So Peter says, hey, man, let's make a contract to go to busboys and poets. On Mondays is half-price burger day. I'm always there anyway, so let's get together, right? And so I said, okay, cool. So Peter says, it's got to be Mondays because it's, it's, it's burger day. Okay, all right, we're going on Mondays. But I say, hey, I'll pay first and third Mondays, and you pay second and fourth Mondays. He's like, ah, I, you know what? I might miss a first or a third. So I'll pay, Peter says, I'll pay second and fourth, and, and you pay these other Mondays, right? And then we talk about, well, what happens if you show up and you ain't got no money and I got to pay three, three Mondays out of the month, right? Then we spell out the consequences there. That's a negotiation. That's a contract. God ain't contracting with his people. He's not negotiating with us. The terms of the covenant are unilateral. God says, this is what it is. And that's what it is, right? And, and we owe to him obedience that comes from faith. And he promises certain rewards. So think about this. I said the, the entirety of the Bible can be organized in terms of covenants. And I'm going to give you six that are sort of the spine of the Bible. If you want to know how your Bible fits together, this is one way of understanding the unity of the Bible. Number one, the covenant of creation. The language of covenant isn't used in Genesis 1 and 2, but many biblical scholars referring on other passages in the Psalms and other places said, no, this very much looks like the terms of a covenant. God has called his creation to behave in certain ways and has promised certain blessings, multiplication, goodness, etc., as the creation behaves in that way. And so we begin with the, with the covenant of creation where God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and says, don't eat this fruit because when you do, you're going to die. They eat the fruit. So that first covenant gets broken by sin. Then there's a second covenant God makes with Noah. He has judged the world because of sin and wiped the world out except for eight persons in the flood. And he says to Noah, I'll never destroy the world again uh, by flood. And he says, I'll give you a sign of this promise. Anybody remember what that was? The rainbow. And so the rainbow becomes a sign of God's covenant with Noah, which you'll see there in Genesis chapter 6 to 9. Well, then we come forward a little bit further in the story, Genesis chapter 12, down around chapter 15, and God calls one pagan man named Abram out of Babylon. And he says, you know what? I'm going to make a new, a special covenant with you. I'm going to take you into a promised land, and I'm going to give you descendants that nobody can number, and they shall be my people. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, and circumcision now becomes a sign of that covenant with Abraham. Come down a little bit further, and, and we get the law in Exodus, and God calls Moses now to go to his people in, in Egypt who have been slaves there for centuries and to deliver them and to bring them into the promised land and to give them his law. So now he has established the covenant of the law. Well, come down a little bit further to 2 Samuel 7. Well, there, there's a king ruling in Israel, the most famous king of all, King David. 
And God comes to him and makes a promise. David, David had wanted to build a house for God, and God said, you know what? You're a man of war. You, you won't build it. You lay the materials aside. Your son Solomon will build it. And I'll tell you what, I'll build a house for you. I'll, I'll build a throne for you, that there'll be one who sits on your throne forever. And this becomes the Davidic covenant, right? The promise of a Messiah who will come through the lineage of David, who will rule forever as David's son. And then we come to the pages of the New Testament. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of a promise made in Jeremiah 33, where God said, I will make in those days with you a new covenant, where I will write my law, not on stone tablets, but I will write my law on your heart. And Jesus comes, and when he dies in Gethsemane, the night before he's betrayed, what did he do? He sat with his disciples. And he redefined all that had happened in the Old Testament in terms of his own death and life, doesn't it? And he says, a new covenant I make with you for the remission of your sins. So now God calls everyone everywhere to repent of their sin and put their, place, their faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's how we come into covenant relationship with God. Now, if you notice, um, again, there's no way to be in a relationship with God without being in a covenant with him. Plus, a covenant with God requires the shedding of blood for the atonement of sins. You see that hinted at with Adam and Eve. You remember when they sinned, what God did? He killed animals, didn't he? And took the skins and made coverings for them. You see that symbolized uh, in the covenant with Abraham. When God made the covenant with Abraham, he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And Abraham dreamed about animals who had been cut in half. And God said, if I don't keep my covenant with you, may what happens to these animals happens to me. And, and an image of God passes between the animals, symbolizing the shedding of blood and the cutting of the covenant. And that need for shedding of blood and atoning sacrifice, well, that gets made really clear, doesn't it, in the covenant of the law and the Mosaic system where all the time animals, the blood of bulls and goats are being shed to make atonement, to make a sacrifice for sins. But the blood of bulls and goats can't save us. It's the blood of the Son of God that saves us. And so once again, everything that the covenant requires in terms of the shedding of blood for the saving of sinners, Jesus fulfills on the cross as his blood is shed for us, as he is punished in our place, and as God's wrath is satisfied in punishing him. He gets justice. We get mercy through faith in his sacrifice on the cross. So the whole Bible is organized really in this covenantal structure, this relationship between God and men. Well, you say that's, that's man and God, but I want to say also that sometimes human relationships are defined by covenant as well. So as we're reading the story of the Bible, we see various kinds of human relationships that are also, in that sense, kind of contracted. The very first relationship in the Bible is what? Human relationship is what? Marriage. God takes Adam and Eve, places them in the garden, and the two shall become one. That's the language of covenant. And every time we see a human marriage since Adam and Eve, think about this. Every culture, every place has some conception of marriage. And, and, and every culture, every place has some ritual for marriage, for, for sort of um, uh, celebrating and solemnizing this covenant between a man and a woman. It goes all the way back to the garden. Or think about friendship. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. 
David and Jonathan are friends, close friends. They loved each other and expressed their commitment to each other in a friendship covenant. Or think about Israel and the Gibeonites. This is an interesting one. This is between nations now. Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites hear about Israel marching into the land, defeating enemies, and they got slick with it. So they dressed up like they were really poor. They put on worn out shoes and, and they act like they were traveling from a far off land. And they come to Israel and, and Joshua like, where y'all come from? They're like, we come from a way, way away. Now they just right next door. We come from a far away country. And, and, and they ask Israel to make a covenant with them. And Joshua mistakenly makes a covenant with them allowing them to live in the land. And, and in honor of that covenant, Israel was plagued for centuries through that disobedience. So you get sort of national covenants, and, and you can even get a person making a covenant with themselves. So think, for example, about Job 31, verse 1, where Job says there, I make a covenant with my eyes not to look on a, a woman uncleanly. All right? That's a covenant many of us need to make, all right? In our entertainment choices, uh, in, our, in our fight against pornography, um, in the way we look at sisters and brothers uh, in the church or on the street, we need to make a covenant with our eyes not to look on anything in an unclean way. So covenants run throughout the Bible in that sense, and I hope that brief survey gives you a sense of that. And now what we're talking about here is a church covenant. It's a, it's a covenant that we make with each other as human, and human beings, but it's a covenant that we make with each other as human beings that grows up out of the reality of the covenant that we have with God, right? So this is a lateral expression of a vertical relationship. This is us playing out with each other the requirements that God has called us to in his Bible. It helps us to define what it means to live together as the people of God. And so that brings us to the second point where we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the covenant. There are three principles then that, that really laid a foundation for our covenant. There are three spiritual realities that this opening line speaks about that we want to be clear about as we renew our covenant with each other, which we'll do in just a moment when we come to the Lord's table. The first one is this, that we are, as participants in this covenant, we are saved by grace. See how it starts? Having been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we form a covenant community, we're doing so as people who believe the gospel as people who trust in Jesus, we form this community on that basis. Now, there are many other kinds of communities that are formed on other kinds of bases, right? So you might belong to a professional organization. Maybe you're a member of the National Society of Black Engineers, or maybe you're a member of the Society of Human Resource Management or something. So there's a whole community there with its own standards that are formed. Or you might live in a community, an actual neighborhood that, that has a lease agreement or has a, a community covenant where you agree to certain things as a part of living in an actual neighborhood. And that's built on a whole different set of issues. Here now, this community is not built on any such thing as, as, as sort of human real estate laws or professional practices. It's built on this miracle that God in his grace sought us out individually 
and gave us new birth. He converted us. We were dead in sin, but God has made us alive with Christ. We were lost and wandering toward judgment, but God caused us in his grace to change our mind and change our direction and to come back to him where it's safe. Ephesians chapter 2, you still got your finger there? Look with me in verses 1 to 9. Notice how how the Apostle Paul describes this great change that happens in us, happens in the Christian. He starts off with our life before Jesus in verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says, listen now, you were dead in sin. You had no life in you because of sin. And you were controlled and dominated by the world, your flesh, your sin nature, and the devil, right? And and the consequence of that is you were a child of wrath, not a child of God. You were destined for judgment, not salvation. And so that's who we we were. But now notice what Paul says in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We were dead, but... Not after we finished doing what we were doing, not after we changed some things, not after we read some self-help books, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, God showed us his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Grace means we didn't earn it and we don't have to earn it. Notice what 8 and 9 says again. And this is not your own doing It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Beloved, sometimes Christians, we hit a rough rough patch, and things may not be going the way we want them to go. We may not be getting from God what we think we want from God. You you, you ought never act like God ain't never gave you nothing. Your whole salvation is a gift of God. Gave you himself and his kingdom forevermore. So we have been brought by grace, notice now, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we we were going in the direction of sin, but we repented. We changed our mind and changed our direction, and now we've been going in the direction of Christ. We have been living a life of unbelief, not really obeying God, going our own way. Now we have been turned and we live a life now of belief, of trust in Christ. We depend upon him as our Savior and our Lord. That happened by grace. 
And a fancy word, theological word for those two things, we repentant and believe is converted. That's conversion. Those are the two halves of conversion. This is what it means to be a converted Christian. We, we repented of a life of sin and turned back toward God, and we have now put our faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord. So to be a member of this community, this covenant community, is to say, yes, that happened to me. And to say, yes, I think that happened to you too. Right? So it's a community of people who are gathered together by this common experience of conversion. I was going along and God interrupted me. And God changed me. And God converted me. And God brought me into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can testify that that's what happened to me. And as we come into this community of others, we're saying, and I believe that happened to you. This is the first thing that forms the basis for covenant community with God and his people. Now, sometimes people become members of a church and conversion hasn't really happened to them. Sometimes people join a church thinking they're Christians, but they're not. And sometimes people join a church knowing they're not Christians, but think it's kind of the right thing to do. Now, if, if that's you, I want you to know you're not the first person that's happened to. There are lots of people who joined churches and became members on somebody's church role who didn't know Jesus, who, who maybe got baptized as a 10-year-old or 12-year-old or 8-year-old or 20-year-old and didn't understand the gospel. That's part of my story. High school teenager in trouble for the first time. All I really knew about church was when my older brothers got in trouble, they went to church to clean themselves up a bit. Church was a little bit like rehab, right? And I got in trouble and I thought, I better go to church. Man did an altar call and I'm thinking to myself, man, my brothers after about three weeks, they'd be back in the streets. I ain't really trying about that life. Let me respond to this altar call. So I go up front, two weeks later, I get dunked in the water. I can't spell Jesus. Don't know who he is. But I'm in there being religious with everybody else. It would be years later before I actually understood the gospel and put my faith in Jesus and begin to follow him as my Lord and my Savior. So if that's you, don't be ashamed. Come forward. Come on out and believe the gospel. You can believe in Jesus now without pretending. I found it exhausting to pretend I was a Christian because what it involved was trying to do stuff I didn't really want to do, right? I didn't have a taste for the things of God. I had a taste for the world. That's why I went back. I didn't have a taste for holiness. I had a taste for sin, right? I didn't have a taste for God's covenant people. I had a taste for running the road with my dogs. And, and, and here I was trying to be religious because I said I was joining the church, but I ain't know Jesus. And beloved, that don't last. And if it lasts to the day you die, then the most terrible thing that could ever happen will happen. The Lord will say, depart from me because I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. So better to come into the light now. Don't, don't pretend. Don't, don't act like you know God when you don't. Instead, say, hey, he died for me. Confess your sin, put your faith in Jesus and really walk with him and really come into the covenant community as a real member. And let me say something else. Sometimes, Sometimes people begin to believe a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, as Galatians 1 tells us. 
Now, when that happens, we want to try to help you hold on to the truth. There are a lot of voices out there that would we would see you following Jesus and would want to come up alongside of you and, and not just deny Jesus outright, but start to sort of try and convince you of a Jesus that's different than the one in the Bible and convince you of some things that are different than what the Bible calls you to. But we want to be a covenant community where we keep our grip on Jesus tight, right? And so if that's you, if you feel yourself pulled toward some other version of Jesus, if you're thinking, you know, I'm going to rethink Jesus, beloved, can't rethink Jesus. The only Jesus there is, is the Jesus who shows himself to us in the Bible, right? And so we want to have a tight grip on that Jesus. And, and if you feel yourself drifting, let us know. That's what the covenant community is for, is that we keep a good grip on him and the salvation that he gives. Don't, don't walk away. And so this means, beloved, uh, we ought to be a community that rejoices in sharing our testimony, shouldn't we? There's a verse in Revelation that talks about the, the martyrs of the church. It says they, they overcame the world. They overcame their persecutors by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And the word of their testimony. So I want to give you a, a practical application here. We're, we're a community of people who have been saved by grace. Let me give you a practical application. Write out your testimony this week. If you haven't done this in a while or if you've never done this, write, write out your testimony. Write out a description of what your life was like before you knew Jesus. That's the BC, before Christ, right? You know, describe your life, what it was like, what you thought about, what you loved, what you did, what was, what was sinful, what was good about it maybe. Then, part two, write in your testimony how you met Jesus, you know, what, what were you doing? What, what, where were you? Who, who began to talk to you about Jesus? How did the message about his death on the cross for your sin really click with you? And, and how did the message about his resurrection and eternal life really, really sort of begin to resonate with your heart? When did you decide to follow Jesus? Describe that. And then part three, talk about what life has been like with Jesus, right? So has it, has it been hard? Sometimes that's what happens with Christians. We, we were running along in the world. We met Jesus. We started following Jesus. Then all of a sudden stuff got real hard. We felt like we were swimming, swimming upstream. Or, or, or did, did life with Jesus all of a sudden make even hard things easier? You, you, they were still hard, but you had hope. You had joy. Whatever it is, it's your story, right? There's no right or wrong. Write out your testimony this week. Be familiar with your own story. Be familiar with the work of grace in your heart that God has performed. Your testimony is kind of the fingerprints of God in your life. You know? Build an Ebenezer. Here's a second very practical application. After you've written your testimony, share your testimony. Tell somebody else. I love the way the old saints in, in the traditional black church, somebody, let me tell it because you can't tell it like I can. You know, tell your testimony. It's your story. It's your, it's your unique testament to God forming a covenant with you, converting you and making you his own. And there are many ways to share your testimony. So some people like, you know, you're like, I ain't want to talk to nobody about it. You know, I just make a TikTok. Yeah, I see some of y'all on TikTok. Some of y'all TikTok experts. You know, y'all got all kinds of stories. You tell them to make a TikTok. 
When's the last time you seen a TikTok testimony? That, that ought to be a hashtag, TikTok testimony. When's the last time you seen one of those? Get creative with it. it you know what? Do, do an IG live. You know, just say, hey, tonight, 8 o'clock, I'm going to tell the world what Jesus did in my life. Spend 30 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, just sharing your testimony. Share your testimony during an evangelistic conversation. So if you go out in coffee and convo or you're in the workplace, now your testimony is not the gospel, but your testimony is evidence that the gospel is real, right? So you might just sort of open the conversation by saying, let me, let me, let me share with you what God did in my life and share that testimony. And, and that'd be a, a way of moving toward the gospel itself, the news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our salvation. One other sort of practical thing you can do, listen to the testimony of others. Invite them to tell you, how did you become a Christian? In fact, we can do that next week. Is there anybody here who wants to volunteer to share their testimony next week? Anybody in the service? Take about five minutes. Yeah? I like that, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Y'all give Andrew a big clap of praise. Amen. Amen. That, that was one of the sweet parts of our online services when we were completely online just people recording and sharing their testimony. Oh, that, that's a very biblical thing to do. And it's part of how we nurture our covenant together and the covenant community of God's people is we remember that we have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two, we're talking about three spiritual realities that, that sort of laid a foundation for covenant community. Number two, we are not only saved by God's grace, we depend on the Holy Spirit. We depend on the Holy Spirit. You see that there, that, that phrase, independence upon his spirit. Now, when we become Christians, we receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God, not a force. He is a person, so we can and should relate to him. The Holy Spirit has many roles in a Christian's life. He is the one who gives us repentance and faith. He, he puts God's seal of ownership on us until the day of redemption, Ephesians 1.14, I believe. The Holy Spirit gives us the, the gifts that he wants us to have so that we can serve the church. You see that in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. And the Holy Spirit, I love this part, testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. You ever had a voice telling you you're a Christian, that you belong to God? You ain't just talking to yourself. That's the spirit communicating with your spirit that you belong to the Lord. That's where assurance comes from in part. And our power or ability to live for Jesus comes from the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives us power to witness. And so, and we can say many other things, but living in dependence on God, the Holy Spirit, ought to be the regular way a Christian lives. That's, that's the main gist right there. Living in dependence on the Holy Spirit ought to be the regular way a Christian lives. Let me show this to you in the Bible in a couple of places, and then we'll make a couple of applications. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. In fact, that whole chapter, I would argue, is a description of spirit-filled living. Uh, if, if you want to, there's a sermon series we did a couple years ago on Romans 8. You can go online and listen to that as well. But Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, for those who live according to the flesh, that's the sinful nature, set their minds on the things of the flesh, the sinful nature, 
But those who live according to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, notice what they do. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. We get a picture there that there's only two things to put your mind on. The things of the Spirit or the things of the flesh. And it's not like you say, I'm going to think about the Spirit Sunday morning from 10 to 12, and then I'm going to take the rest of the week off and think about the flesh. No, he said to put your mind on the things of the flesh is death. But to put your mind on things of the Spirit is life, right? And so we, we are never given the impression that it's okay for the Christian to take a day off from the Spirit and just put their mind on the flesh. No, we are meant to regularly live in the Spirit, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Or another famous passage, Galatians chapter 5. And here now Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit that's produced in our lives. And Again, our, our brother Colin did a wonderful sermon on this um, several months ago, and so you can go check that out as well. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, if he's at work in our lives, these are the kinds of virtues that he's producing. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. And if, if the Spirit is in our lives, we ought to dance with him. We ought to keep in step with him. We ought to follow him, right? We ought to, it's, a, it's a little, just a little 52-year-old dip right there. You ought to uh, dance with him and keep in step with him, right? He, he should be leading us in all that we do. So we're not keeping a step with the world. We're not keeping a step with political leaders. We're not keeping a step with our favorite authors. We're not even keeping a step with our pastors. We admit to keep a step with the Spirit, to depend on the Holy Spirit. All those other things can help us, pastors and favorite authors, but, but we ought to be keeping in step with the Spirit. Even with my reading, yeah, many of you know me, you know I love to read. And even with my reading uh, last year on sabbatical, I realized something. I was reading... Um, Dane Ortland's great book, um, Gentle and Lowly, fantastic book, phenomenal book, best book I've read in years. I realized something that I, I kind of, I've read a lot of books that give me a lot of theology or a lot of church history or a lot of sociology from a Christian perspective. It didn't give me a lot of Jesus. And the result of that is you can have a, a strong relationship with your theology and a weak relationship with Jesus. And so my resolution coming out of sabbatical was like, I, I just, I'm kind of, I'm closer to glory now. I, I don't know how many more years the Lord will give me. If he gives me years, could be days. I'm closer to glory now. I want to see Jesus more clearly. I want to be related to Jesus more clearly. So, so my, my own personal, doesn't have to be yours, but my own personal resolution is I'm, I'm kind of, if you got book recommendations for me or things of that sort, Please refer to me books that made you feel closer to Jesus. That's what I want to read, right? Other books have their place. I'm not saying you shouldn't read them. I'm just too old now to be reading a lot of stuff that don't leave me with the Lord, right? And so that, that's where I am. And I want to keep in step with the Spirit. So, so it might be that there's a book out there that helps me walk more closely with God, the Holy Spirit. That, that's, that's kind of what I want to feed my soul. I, I would encourage that for you to consider.
So we, we want to be marked as a community by people who are living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you a couple application questions here, things for you to think about uh, and maybe act on. Number one, do you think of your church membership as a part of the Christian life that requires dependence on the Holy Spirit? Do you think of church membership as a supernatural, spirit-filled part of your life? If not, then what or who have you been dependent on in order to be a member of the church? Now, you maybe never thought about these questions before, but I can assure you, you're depending on something or someone to keep this covenant, to keep the promises of this covenant. You're either dependent on your own strength or you're dependent on all the other Christians making you happy or you're dependent on the pastor scratching some kind of itch or you're depending on the reputation that you get for serving in some kind. You're depending on something. The question is, is it the Spirit? Is, is it our own strength, or is it the strength that God supplies? Is it our own perspective, or is it the perspective that comes from God in His Word? Here's, how know, here's one way you can tell the difference. If you are easily tempted to quit on the church that did not come from the Holy Spirit. It didn't. It didn't. If, if you're easily tempted to think that the church should move and breathe and act and operate in a way that serves your convenience or your pleasure, you didn't get that from God. I don't know where you got it from, but you didn't get it from God because God calls us to follow his son who did what? Died for us, who sacrificed for us, right? And, and he's called us into this community that's formed by that very sacrifice. How is it that the community of God's people can be formed by sacrifice and God's people think that community should exist for their ease? That didn't come from the Lord. If you're easily offended by something that was said or not said, by how somebody looked at you or something that just kind of hit you wrong, but you don't want to practice reconciliation. You don't want to go to that brother and sister and say, hey, you know what? That was offensive. Can we talk about that? But you'd rather hit the eject button. You're not living in dependence upon the Spirit's power. You're living upon the flesh's power. That's just some ways you can tell. I'm sure there are other ways. Maybe think about that. Talk about that over lunch. How can you tell whether or not you're living in dependence upon God's spirit when it comes to keeping covenant with God's people. Because, beloved, I'm going to tell you, I've been a Christian a long time now, looking at my wife. She got the brain this morning, so it was about 30 years almost. Almost 30 years. And I've been a pastor, praise the Lord, he kept me. And I've been a pastor 20 years. I can tell you, it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to be a Christian when you're at home by yourself. Think of how hard it is to get together with a whole bunch of other Christians who's finding it hard to be Christian. It's hard. And sometimes, beloved, sometimes, here's the truth, sometimes it hurt. Sometimes things are said and done that hurt. And, and not necessarily because people are trying to hurt you, right? And that's when it's most confusing. When you're looking at someone that you think is actually trying to love you, but what they're saying, it's like, oh, man, stop hitting me. And then to lean into community? Don't we need the Spirit's help? 
So that, that's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to encourage you to spend some time this afternoon thinking about, have I been approaching my covenant commitments to ARC? Or if you're visiting with us, my covenant commitment to my local church, have I been approaching those covenant commitments merely in my own strength and wisdom? Or, or as, a, as, a, as an active dependence upon the Holy Spirit for strength and wisdom. Okay, third thing, third spiritual truth that is meant to sort of be a foundation to our church covenant is this, that we live by faith. So we are saved by grace, we depend upon the Spirit, and we live by faith. Notice the resolution there. So based upon the fact that we've been saved by grace and, and now in dependence upon the Spirit, we make a resolution. We resolve to live by faith. Now, to live by faith is to have every aspect of our life, our thoughts, our decisions, our relationships, our activities governed by trust in God. It is to do everything trusting God, trusting Christ as our Savior. Now, to understand this, we have to remember that faith is not just a belief. It is also a way of life. There is having faith, and there is being in the faith, right? The, the, the covenant calling, the covenant here is calling us into a way of life, not just a set of beliefs. Our set of beliefs are defined more fully in our statement of faith. But now here we're defining that way of life, that behavior that should accompany those beliefs. So if you want to put biblical backing to this resolution, we could use Galatians 2.20, where Paul talks about the fact that he's been crucified with Christ, and he no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. Then he says this, and the life that I now live, what? I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who what? That's right. Loved me and gave himself for me. He says, Paul says, I'm living by faith. I'm crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. And this whole life now that I'm living, this whole behavior, this whole pattern of existence, this whole life now, I'm living by faith in the Son of God. If I go to Jerusalem, it's by faith in the Son of God. If I write you a pastoral epistle, it's by faith in the Son of God. If I take this whipping for preaching the gospel, it's by faith in the Son of God. If I sit with you and preach a sermon till you fall out the window and die, it was by faith in the Son of God that I raised you from the dead. That's Paul. It's all by faith. Or we could use Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The second part of that verse, the prophet Habakkuk says very simply, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And that little bitty tiny letter, Old Testament prophetic letter, gets quoted in at least three passages in the Bible, in the New Testament. We see it quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. But Paul's talking about the gospel in verse 16, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And then he says in verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. Or Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, where he makes a very similar comment. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. In these three places, we are called to remember that as God's people, we are meant to live, not by sight, but by faith. By faith. This is so important that the Bible doesn't want us to miss it, so the Bible also puts it in the negative. It puts it in the reverse. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. There the apostle Paul says, 
whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever we do, unbelieving, disbelieving, is sin. Why? Because our whole life is meant to proceed up out of faith. Faith faith is the seedbed of our life. Faith is the soil of our life. And so everything that sort of grows from that soil should be getting nourishment from, from the soil of faith. But it's some strange kind of seed for the Christian that, that grows up and is not rooted in faith, but is rooted in unbelief. So everything that does not come from faith is sin. And so the church covenant here calls us to resolve or to promise that we will live the way that God in the Bible calls the righteous to live. And that is we will walk by faith. And in that way, membership in the church covenant is like a large partnership. It's a large partnership where we will help each other trust God and follow his commands and his word. That's what it's about. Now, partnerships are the best when they share a clear goal that everyone works toward together. When the goal isn't clear or the goal isn't shared, then the partnership really breaks down, doesn't it? Right? If you're in, uh, Chris and I, we were partners in a bookstore when we were in undergraduate school on a little African-American bookstore with another college friend. We took our, I don't recommend this, we took our financial aid money and put it together and opened a bookstore it might be fraud. I don't know. Nobody, nobody stopped us. We, we did pay our tuition, though. We paid our tuition, and then we took the rest for books, and we spent it on a bookstore. <laughs> and my partner, well, you know, it's past the statute of limitation. <laughs> and, my, and my partner and I, at a certain point, we had opened this bookstore together. We were excited about a bookstore. But he wanted to travel up and down the East Coast, basically, to HBCUs and other campuses selling T-shirts and beads and little Africa medallions, red, black, and green. I, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. But that's what he wanted to do. And I'm like, bro, that's a whole different business. So he might have a Saturday where he's supposed to work in the bookstore. And I get called from people like, hey, man, I came by the bookstore, but wasn't nobody there. I said, what you mean, wasn't nobody there? Almost said his name. He, he was supposed to be there. And I called him up. No, nah, man, I'm at a and I'm in Greensboro, man. They about to have this step show. I'm going to sell these beads. Bruh, we got a whole business we supposed to be in. So we had different goals, and we're doing different things, and the partnership couldn't stand. That's true of any partnership. That's true of the partnership of marriage. Uh, the husband and wife start doing different things and pursuing different goals. It's going to be hard. How can two walk together unless they're agreed, right? And so it is in the church. How can we walk together in this partnership of encouraging one another to live by faith unless we agree that that's what we're supposed to be doing? And we trust that we have been saved and we are depending upon God's spirit. And so we resolve again and again to live by faith. So a couple of application questions. Do you think of church membership as a partnership where we help each other to live by faith, by faith in God. How are you helping others live by faith? How are you helping others live by faith? And how are others helping you live by faith? Let's get our eye on that, right? 
that, 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 that the main thing that we are resolving to do right here as we start defining covenant community is to walk together by faith. And let's, let's get our eye on how we can encourage that, how we can stir that up in one another very practically. And beloved, what this means is you, you don't have to go it alone. You should not go it alone. The covenant community exists so we can support one another in precisely this. And everyone is necessary because everyone has something to contribute. And let me give you a simple example of this. And this is meant to be an encouragement to those of you who are listening online, but probably should be with us in person. All right. How many of you in here this morning, or even at home, <laughs> if you've been here some Sundays with us, how, how many of you, just by coming to gather with God's people, found in spiritual encouragement in, do, in seeing other saints? Amen. It's like every, almost every hand is up in here. Just, just the very act of being with other saints, particularly when we've not been able to be together for a long time, just that very act builds faith. It stirs us up. It reminds us, oh, yeah, you saved too. I ain't seen you in a while. You've been living like you saved. What's going on with you? You know? And, and, and that sitting together under God's word gives us instruction in how to depend upon God's spirit. And it renews our faith. Beloved, I'm, I'm here to tell you that like most of you, I got comfortable in those two years of doing it online. It was something nice about recording the sermon on Wednesday having Abby put together the whole service in, in a little thing and then it going live on YouTube at 10 o'clock. It was something nice about being done with the sermon by Wednesday and having a whole weekend like y'all do. <laughs> and visiting Bedside Baptist in my pajamas, man. That, that was nice. So when we start meeting again, it's like, oh, snap. I, I got to go before the Lord now because I feel some kind of way about getting up out of bed on time. I get it. I'm, I'm like y'all. I'm like y'all. But here's what I learned the first time we met together in person. That that little experience of convenience at home was a sugary substitute for the meal of gathering together as God's people. And so I want to appeal to you if, you've, if you've not yet committed yourself to regularly gathering with us, we need you. And you need us maybe more than you feel right now. And we are meant to be together because we draw strength from being together, encouragement to live by faith and to live as God's saved people in dependence upon his spirit. We cannot do this alone. Christianity is a team sport, not a solo sport. It's a team sport, not a solo sport. We need each other. We need you. You need us. We all need God. And God has designed the covenant community of the church for fulfilling, for fulfilling those very needs. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, we want to invite you into our community, but we want to make sure that you understand what it means to come into this community. It means, first of all, most fundamentally, nothing else happens without this. It means, first of all, that you turn from sin and you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And, and we want to encourage you to do that, whether or not you join this church, because it's urgent. It's urgent, beloved. God is coming again, and he's coming in judgment. And all those who who, who are alive when he comes or dies before he comes, but haven't put their faith in Jesus, every one of those people have to then give an account to God for their sins. And if God holds our sins against us, none of us can stand. 
The only result of that is that we would be judged eternally. And, and what's really tragic about that is God has already made a way for us to escape that judgment by sending his son. That's why Jesus came is because he knew we could not stand on the day of judgment. We would be consumed in God's holy anger. And what he did was he took that holy anger himself on the cross. When he dies on the cross, what's happening there spiritually is not that just a man was physically nailed to a piece of wood. What's happening there spiritually is that a holy God, angry about all the sin of all the people in the world, is punishing his son in our place so that we would not have to suffer that punishment. That's why Jesus dies. And he's buried for three days and he's raised from the grave. And that resurrection is the proof that he is the son of God. And it is the proof that God accepts his sacrifice for us sinners. And it is the proof that we too can be free from death and judgment and hell through faith in a savior who never dies again and receiving the eternal life that he gives to everyone who trusts in him. And so you hear this morning, that's the community that we're a part of, and that's the community we want you to be a part of. We talk with you about your sins, not because we're self-righteous and judgmental. We talk with you about your sins because your sins, like our sins, is destroying you. But there's a remedy, and that's why we talk about Jesus. He is that remedy. And so we want to encourage you to put your faith in Jesus this morning to trust him, to take away your sin and to give you righteousness, to kill your death and give you eternal life. Trust him. He's so worth it. He's so worth it. Let's pray together, beloved. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy shown to us most clearly in Jesus, your son, when we should have been dead and judged, you sent forth your son to give us life and righteousness. And we thank you, Lord, that you have set us in a community called the church, where together with all of your people, we have the privilege of rejoicing in Jesus, living by faith, living in the power of your spirit and with the hope of eternal life. We thank you that our future is to be with you in your kingdom if we believe. And we pray that you would give that future to more and more people as they come to recognize that they're sinners and that they need a savior. Lord, we thank you for this study that we're about to do through the church covenant. We thank you for your word, which gives us the, the summary statements in our covenant. Help us to not only study the covenant, but to leap more, look more deeply into your word. And help us to be formed, O oh Lord, by your spirit into a, a community, re-knit together by your grace, and give us grace to be wholly committed to all the things we promised we would be committed to in your covenant. Make us covenant-keeping people, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.